On this show, we discuss crimes that are often graphic in nature. Listener discretion is advised. On this episode, we are going to dive into the life and crimes of Edmund Kemper, the co-ed killer. This killer is huge, and I do mean literally. I'm your host, Paulette, and this is Crime Biscuit. if you will, that you are walking down the street. And as you are walking down that street, you are approached by a man. A man that is six feet nine inches tall and about 300 pounds. When he talks to you, he seems friendly and intelligent. He's wearing wire-rimmed glasses, has a mustache, and despite his size, he looks non-threatening. And when he offers you a ride, you notice that he has stickers on his car for the same college that you attend. In fact, there's a staff sticker as well, so someone, maybe not him, because he looks young despite his stature, also works for the college. He's probably okay. Sure, you'll accept his offer of a ride. You get in. You have just stepped into the trap set by Edmund Emble Kemper III, and he is a cold-blooded killer. Ed is born on December 18, 1948 in Burbank, California. His parents are Clarnell and Edmund Emil Kemper Jr. His parents had a pretty rocky relationship, and they separated when Ed was nine. Four years later, his parents divorce. Ed is not at all happy with his father being missing from the home, and even more unhappy with the parade of stepfathers that follow. They move to Helena, Montana, where his mother and sisters are not, by all appearances, very kind to Ed. They often belittle him. And I'm sure the fact that he is becoming very large physically makes them a little bit scared of him. Ed is relegated to the basement, partially because the house is small and the idea of him sharing a room with his sisters is inappropriate. It also seems at this time his mother begins to remind him constantly of his size. Being a preteen, this isn't good at all for his self-esteem. We all know how awkward it is to be in that part of life where your body is doing things that you have no control over, and most of us struggle to adjust. To have your mother basically make fun of you for something you can't help has to be emotionally damaging. I will say that prior to this basement housing arrangement, Ed had been known to decapitate his sister's dolls and maybe do some inappropriate things to the dolls as well. And there was probably some fear on Clarnell's part that he might molest his own sisters. Regardless, I think counseling or medical help might have been a better solution than sending to live in the basement, but this is what happens. Ed has a bit of an irrational fear that other boys are going to hurt him. And because he of this, he isn't able to develop any kind of real friendships with the boys at school. He is still struggling with the divorce of his parents, and he misses his father. About this time, he starts down that road that we all associate with serial killers. He starts torturing and killing animals, and the fantasies in his head start up, and those fantasies are a swill of sex mixed with violence. When Ed is 13, he kills his cat with a machete and then stuffs the dead animal into his closet where his mother finds it. This is the same year that he runs away to live with his father, 
convinced that life will be better if he is with his dad. But his dad has remarried and has another son and doesn't appear all that happy to see Ed. His dad finds Edmund threatening and I'm guessing scary. So Ed Jr. is toying with different ways to remove Ed the third from the house. The family ends up going to spend Christmas of 63 with Ed Jr.'s parents. This gets confusing. Maud and Edmund Kemper Sr. They are on a 17-acre farm in North Fork, California. When Christmas is over, Ed Jr. and his wife go back to L.A., but Ed III is left with his grandparents, much to his dismay, but he's basically stuck there. Ed turns 15 shortly before this Christmas trip, so like any 15-year-old, he's going to have to go to school. Whether he wants to be in North Fork doesn't matter. He starts attending Sierra Joint Union High School in Toll House, which is near the farm. By all accounts, he does okay at school. His teachers think he's quiet and he doesn't do anything to draw attention to himself, except obviously for his unusual size. His grades are just average and he isn't a troublemaker. Back at the farm, things are pretty tense, but not unbearable. His grandparents find Ed and his behavior unsettling, just as his parents had. But Ed makes a point to stay out of the way. He does this by taking his dog and the 22 rifle his grandfather had given him and goes out and shoots rabbits and gophers. Apparently, he's been told not to shoot birds, but he does it anyway. At this point, the aggression he's feeling is limited to this behavior so far. Ed goes back to Helena, supposedly to spend the summer with his mother and sisters, but this only lasts two weeks before he is sent back to the farm. After returning from this brief Montana visit, his grandmother notices that he sort of regressed somewhat in his behavior. He is morose and darkly moody. Since school is out for the summer, he is also constantly around, which probably is stressful to the grandparents, who I guess were probably a bit scared of him. On the other side of the coin, we have Ed, who thinks of his grandmother as a nag and finds his grandfather just plain boring. Ed's twisted fantasies start coming back to haunt him, and he gives his grandmother, Maud, a starring role in them. He starts imagining her in the outhouse while he shoots round after round into it. He might have even lined her up in the sights of his gun in real life, with her unaware of it. His ever-darkening thoughts would have materialized in his behavior in the home, and Maud could probably sense it. And we have proof of that, because on at least one occasion... She took her husband's forty-five pistol with her when she went out because she didn't want the younger Ed to get his hands on it. So it's obvious to me that even if she didn't know what was going on in her grandson's head, on some level, she felt it. She warned Ed in the past not to touch his grandfather's gun, and Ed takes this as an insult. She obviously doesn't trust him, and when she takes it when she goes out one day, that makes it blatantly obvious that his grandmother doesn't believe he'll do as he's been told. Things are bubbling and boiling in Ed's head, and on August 27, 1964, he finds himself sitting at the table with Maud. She is going over some proofs for a children's book she's writing. She looks up, only to find Ed staring at her with a weird look on his face. She's seen this look before, and it honestly scares her. She tells him to stop it. Stop staring at her. Ed stays where he is for a few minutes and then picks up his rifle, calls for his dog, and announces he's going out to shoot gophers. Maud tells him not to shoot any birds, 
which she's warned him not to do before, a warning he has previously ignored. Maud goes back to what she's doing, and Ed walks out of the house. But he doesn't go out to shoot gophers. Instead, he stands outside the screen door and stares at his grandmother. Her back is to him, and she has no idea she's being watched. Or really, hunted. Ed raises the rifle and shoots Maud in the back of the head. When she falls forward onto the table, he goes in and shoots her two more times in the back. He takes a towel and wraps it around her head before dragging her body into the bedroom. A few minutes later, Ed Sr. returns home with groceries. He's busy unloading the truck, and Ed is busy taking aim. He shoots his grandfather in the back of the head and kills him. He will later imply that he killed his grandfather to spare him the grief over his dead grandmother. Now Ed has a problem. Not only do the murders he just committed disturb him, but he also has no idea what to do now. Even if he can manage to hide the bodies, his grandparents are not the kind of people to just pick up and go on a vacation without notifying anyone, so he can't think of what he will tell people. He knows good and well that family and friends will become aware pretty quickly that something is up. In a state of confusion, he calls his mother. She tells him to call the sheriff, which he does. Doesn't take long for him to confess to what he did. He's put in juvenile hall until the California Youth Authority can figure out what to do with Edmund. They have him evaluated by a psychiatrist who diagnoses him as a paranoid and a psychotic. He's then committed to Atascadero State Hospital on December 6, 1964, 12 days before he turns 16. Let's talk about Atascadero State Hospital. This is a secure facility, but its purpose is not incarceration, but treatment. Ed is subjected to a battery of tests, and at one point, he is diagnosed as a sociopath. But Edmund is intelligent, so he is working things out in his head. He doesn't take responsibility for what he's done, but he's using his stay at the hospital to learn. To learn the language the doctors use when talking about what he's done. He is eager when he is tasked with helping administer tests and to help out in the psychology lab. He seems to take a lot of pride in what he's doing, and the doctors think this is a good thing. In fact, a sociopath would likely be uncooperative, but not Ed. Unfortunately, Ed isn't just spending time being helpful. Oh no, he is busy getting to know fellow patients, and some of those patients are serial rapists. These rapists are all too happy to talk about their exploits and Ed who is already struggling in his own mind with violent sexual fantasies, takes these stories as lessons to be learned. He makes a point to note where these rapists went wrong. They shouldn't have raped women they knew, and they shouldn't have left witnesses. All of the discussions lead to the inevitable interpretation in Ed's mind that this behavior is normal. His own fantasies start growing and becoming more prevalent in his mind. He plans to use all of the information he's gleaned from these predators and use it in the future to form his own plan, his own way of enacting his fantasies, but not get caught doing it. In the meantime, Ed is doing as his doctors ask. He is not, obviously, sharing his fantasies with them. He's a manipulator, and his high intelligence makes this fairly easy to do. Speaking of intelligence, it bears pointing out that later he will be tested and his IQ is around 145. 
so he is a genius. Crazy, maniacal, and evil, but a genius. By the time he's released in 1969, he's finished high school inside a Tescadero, and he is released. At that time, he is perceived as conservative, smart, and clean-cut. He starts attending a community college under the supervision of the hospital. Compared to everyone around him, he's kind of a nerd. In those days, he would have been called square. He's surrounded by long-haired hippies that clash with any kind of authority. Ed, on the other hand, has a neatly trimmed mustache, short hair, and a strong desire to become a police officer. Sadly for Ed, that dream is one that he cannot fulfill. Not only are there minimum height requirements to become a cop, there are maximum ones as well. He is just too damn tall. Ed is disappointed, but decides to go ahead, buy himself a motorcycle that kind of gives him the feel of being a motorcycle cop, even if he can't really be one. He is doing well in school, and in three months, he's paroled for another 18 months. The doctors at the state hospital vigorously recommend that Ed not be returned to his mother, who is now living in Santa Cruz. Despite those recommendations, the California Youth Authority does exactly that. They send Ed back to his mom. In the five years that Ed had been committed, Clarnell had remarried and divorced again. Despite the failings of her love life, the rest of her life seemed pretty good. She's holding a job as an administrative assistant at the University of California, Santa Cruz campus. She is well-liked and good at her job. That will all end once Ed is dropped back into her life. Neighbors at her duplex in Aptos would often hear loud arguments between Ed and Clarnell. She would blame him for the course of her life, and according to Ed, she would browbeat him with stupid things like teeth cleanings. To escape his mother's verbal assaults, he finds himself frequenting a local bar called the Jury Room. This bar is visited by a lot of off-duty law enforcement members. Ed spends his time getting to know these officers, and he does this by talking about the pros and cons of different kinds of guns and ammo. Ed is always polite and respectful to these officers, and they start to refer to him as Big Ed. Ed is doing various labor jobs and eventually lands himself a job with the Division of Highways. This finally gives him the chance to get out of his mother's house and get his own apartment in Alameda. Ed's mother, though, still keeps up with a verbal abuse, according to Ed. And the motorcycle thing isn't working out so well. He wrecks it twice, and on the second occasion, he breaks his left arm. He ends up with a court settlement and uses that money to buy himself a car. One that looks an awful lot like an unmarked police car. He outfits that car with a radio transmitter and an antenna. Now that he has wheels, he starts to pick up hitchhikers. He prefers pretty, petite female hitchhikers. He pays close attention to how they react to him, and he uses this information to alter his behavior in order to make them trust him. Ed drives them to their destinations unharmed, but in his mind, he's acting out violent fantasies of what he will do to them once he's finally worked the perfect plan out in his head. From these educational dry runs, he decides to make some alterations to his vehicle. He removes the antenna and rigs up the passenger door so it can't be opened from the inside. In the trunk, he puts knives, a blanket, plastic bags, and a gun. Everything is set so when the perfect opportunity arrives, Ed will be ready to act. He keeps right on picking up girls, using them all as learning experiences. He does this for more than a year, till May 7th, 
1972, when the perfect opportunity seems to arrive. Marianne Pesci and Anita Luchessa are students at Fresno State College, and they are on their way back from Berkeley. They're headed to Stanford University, where they have the misfortune of crossing paths with Ed. He picks them up and drives them around for a bit. Then he pulls a gun out from under the seat and pulls the car into a deserted area where he makes Anita get out and into the trunk. He then goes back to Marianne and puts a plastic bag over her head and makes her lay face down in the back seat. He attempts to strangle her with some terry cloth, but she chews through the bag to get air and the terry cloth ends up snapping. Ed then pulls out a knife and stabs her over and over again. He cuts her throat and kills her. He then pulls Anita from the trunk and using a bigger knife, he stabs her. She is fighting and screaming, but she is no match for Big Ed. He puts her body in the car and just drives around for a while. After he's done driving and probably working out what to do next in his head, he takes Marianne's body back to his apartment where he dissects her. He decapitates both women. He then disposes of Marianne's body in the same plastic bag he had tried to suffocate her in. He keeps both heads for a while before throwing them into a ravine. When the girls don't reach Stanford, their families file missing persons reports, but considering the time and the fact that lots of people hitchhiked and there were a lot of transients in the Bay Area, it isn't acted on as quickly as it might have been. People assume that it's the usual case of girls go missing for a while only to turn up later somewhere else. In this case, even if the police had jumped right on it, it would have been too late. Ed had already killed them. In August, Marianne's body is found and identified. Anita's head and body are never found. Despite finding this body, no one at all suspects clean-cut, cop-friendly Ed Kemper. On September 14, 1972, 15-year-old Aikuku is waiting for a bus to go to a dance class. She gets tired of waiting and decides to hitchhike. And she does get a ride with Ed Kemper. When she sees the gun in the car, she panics. Ed somehow convinces her that he's planning to kill himself. And if she refrains from trying to signal the police or anyone else that passes by, he'll let her go unharmed. He drives up into the mountains and gets off of the main road and parks where the car can't be seen. He then tapes Aiko's mouth shut and attempts to suffocate her by pinching her nostrils shut. She does pass out, but she comes to a few minutes later. Ed attempts to suffocate her again, and this time doesn't let up until she stops breathing. He removes her from the car, puts her on the ground, and rapes her. Then he strangles her with her own scarf just to be sure she's really dead. He puts her body into the trunk and then takes a little detour to a nearby bar to have a few beers. After the bar, he goes to his mother's house. On the way to his mom's, he stops occasionally and opens the trunk to look at his handiwork. Eventually, late that night, he takes the body up into his apartment and dismembers it. He disposes of the hands and head in a separate location from her body. Little of her is ever recovered, and no one connects her disappearance to Marianne and Anita's disappearances. Over the next four months, Ed is not doing anything, but there are other killers active in the Bay Area. Bodies are found, but no one suspects Ed for any of them. In January of 1973, despite the fact that he's banned from buying a firearm due to his previous crimes, Ed buys a 22 caliber pistol. 
He does, however, have a fear that police might just catch on to him because he's in possession of a handgun illegally. This motivates him to pick up the pace. Ed is out hunting, and he runs across Cindy Shaw and drives her up into the hills near Watsonville. He forces her into the trunk and shoots her with his newly acquired pistol. The bullet ends up stuck in her skull. Ed, who has recently moved back in with his mother, Clarnell, goes back to his mother's duplex in Aptos, takes the body to his room with him, and goes to bed. When his mother leaves for work the next morning, Ed has sex with Cindy's corpse and then dismembers her in the bathtub, being careful to remove any evidence. He removes a bullet from her skull and buries the head in the backyard. He then puts the body parts in plastic bags and tosses them over a cliff. Unfortunately for Ed, this body is discovered within 24 hours. Instead of worrying Ed, though, it doesn't seem to bother him at all. He is sure that he has done such a good job at getting rid of the evidence that they will not connect him to the crime. As a little side note here, if you've ever watched Mindhunter on Netflix, the actor playing Ed says he buried heads in the backyard, face up, looking at his mother's window. He says he does this because his mom's always wanted people to look up to her. I was curious if maybe this was true, but I could not find any interview with the real Ed Kemper where he makes that claim. Not saying it isn't true. I'm just saying I couldn't find it. So a month later in February, Ed and his mother get into an enormous argument and Ed storms out of the apartment. He is mad and ready to lash out. He picks up Rosalind Thorpe and just chats with her. Not too long after picking her up, he picks up Alice Lou. She sees Rosalind in the car, and there's a UC Santa Cruz parking sticker on the car, so she feels completely safe. She gets in, and they all just ride around for a while. Ed points to something outside the window, and Rosalind turns her attention to the lovely view. Ed draws his twenty-two and shoots Rosalind in the head. Quickly, he turns the gun back towards Alice and shoots her several times. But Alice doesn't die right away like Rosalind had. He then gets out of the car and shoots her in the head and finally kills her. He drives the car to a cul-de-sac and moves the bodies from the car to the trunk. After that, he goes and gets gas and then goes back home. He goes inside, but then turns right back around, telling his mom he needs to go get cigarettes. He goes outside, pops the trunk, and decapitates the bodies right there. The next morning... Mom leaves. He brings Alice's headless body inside and has sex with it. He then goes back to the trunk and gets Rosalind's head and brings it in so he can remove the bullet. He does the usual dismemberment routine, and then as he's driving away from Santa Cruz, he gets rid of most of the parts. He drives on to Pacifica to dispose of the heads and the hands. Two weeks before his next murder, Ed claims he picked up two girls with the intention of killing them. In an interview, he says they were very much like the first two he'd killed, but for some reason, he says to himself that he has got to stop, and he lets them out. They have no idea how close they came to being victims of Ed. Two weeks after that, he will commit his final two murders. By all accounts, Clarnell did not suspect her son of being a killer, and she certainly didn't think she'd be one of his victims. On Easter weekend, a month after killing Rosalind and Alice, Ed made up his mind that it is time to kill his mother. When she comes home, in his own words, soused as usual, and goes to her room, Ed follows. She, according to Ed, looks up and says basically, 
I suppose you'll want to stay up all night talking. In an interview, when Ed recounts this moment, he actually tears up, as if her saying this to him was hard to talk about. He tearfully tells the interviewer that he said no to her and left the room. But he admits that even as he says this, he knows he's going to kill her. So while his mother is in her room sleeping, he sits in his room planning out what he's about to do. At 5.15 a.m., he gets a hammer and heads to her room. I don't know about you, but when I hear about someone having a hammer and I feel my scalp get prickly and a knot build up in my stomach, something about the idea of being hit in the head with a hammer is so horrifying to me. And the fact that this is what he grabs to use against his own mother just freaks me out. Anyway, Ed takes that hammer and strikes her with enormous force just one time and then slashes her throat. He quickly beheads her and pulls out her larynx, which he tries to put down the garbage disposal. Again, I'm going to mention the Netflix series Mindhunter. The character of Ed claims to have had oral sex with her head. In the interview I watched, he never says that he did that. Again, I'm not saying he didn't, but at least in that particular interview, he doesn't admit to it. Regardless, the disposal spits the body part back out, which Ed finds humorous. His mother has always been very verbal in belittling him and blaming him, so this is all probably quite fitting in his mind. Then he decides to play darts and uses his mother's head as a target. When he's had enough fun, he tucks her body into a closet, cleans up some, and leaves. That day, he mulls over what exactly he should do next. He comes to the conclusion that if someone else were to also turn up dead, that might push the suspicion away from him. So his solution? Call his mother's friend, Sarah Howlett, and invite her to come over for dinner. At first, he can't get a hold of her, and that worries him, because he doesn't have another plan immediately ready. But around 5 p.m. that night, Sarah calls the house looking for Clarnell. Ed tells Sarah he wants her to come over for dinner, and that this unplanned visit will be a surprise for his mom. She agrees, and when she gets there, Ed immediately strangles her, first by hand, and then with the same scarf he strangled Iko. He takes off Sarah's clothes and puts her on his bed. Later that evening, he attempts sex with the corpse. On Easter morning, Ed leaves town in Sarah's car, but begins to get paranoid, and rightfully so. He's driving around in a murder victim's car. He drops the car off at a gas station and rents a car. He then drives for 18 hours, stopping only to get gas and pop and no-dos to stay awake. He actually gets pulled over in Colorado for speeding, but there is nothing in this gentle giant's demeanor that belies the monster he really is. He pays his fine and off he goes. When he gets to Pueblo, Colorado, he's done in and can't go any farther. This is when he goes to a phone booth and calls the Santa Cruz Police Department, where he knows several of the officers. He then begins to confess. But this takes several calls, because at first, they think he's a crank caller. They tell him to call back, which he does. But again, no one believes him. The officers who know Ed just think it's some kind of joke. He keeps calling. Eventually, he tells an officer that they should go check out his mother's house. Ed tells this officer on the phone that Sergeant Aluffy was at the house recently to confiscate a 44 caliber handgun that Ed had bought and that Aluffy will know where the house is. Sergeant Aluffy goes to the home personally. 
When he walks in, the smell of decomposition is obvious. He opens up a closet and finds blood and hair. He secures a scene and calls in other detectives and the coroner. In the closet, they find the two bodies, just as Ed had told them they would. Both are decapitated and Clarnell's body looks battered and it is obvious her head has been used for dart practice. Clarnell's tongue and larynx are chopped up and, as Ed had claimed, been spit back out by the garbage disposal. The investigators now know that Ed is the co-ed butcher, as they called him, and it's clear to them how he's escaped their notice for so long. Ed is a regular at the jury room and has probably overheard a lot of details about the investigation. He's been studying them and learning how to get better at eluding them. He also would be aware of what they were doing to try and catch the killer. His easy manner not only availed him to the police, but made it understandable how the girls he picked weren't afraid to get in the car with him. D.A. Peter Chang and a group of detectives travel across three states to collect Ed. This is interesting. Ed can't quite tell them where to come find him. He's confused and disoriented and can't tell them how to get to the phone booth in Pueblo where he's calling from. They do eventually figure out his location and there is Ed calmly waiting for them. He declines an attorney and says he will talk to investigators. The tape recorders start rolling and Ed starts talking and talking and talking. Ed tells them that his mother hated him because he reminded her of his father, who was also a very large man. He tells them about being put in the basement, but gives different reasons for it depending on who he's talking to. He tells them about a time that he killed the family cat and put its head on an altar. He convincingly lies about it, and he says that gave him a sense of power, because not only had he done it, but he'd convinced others that he hadn't. He also tells them that one of his sisters had tried to goad him into kissing a teacher. But Ed responded that if he did kiss her, he'd have to kill the teacher, which is a disturbing thing for a young boy to say. Ed tells investigators about killing his mother. He says it was hard to do, and he did show emotion to the police, but only when talking about his mother's murder, not any of the others. He said, quote, I cut off her head and I humiliated her, of course. She was dead because of the way she raised her son. Ed then said he put her head on the mantle, told her whatever it was he had been wanting to say, and then started throwing darts at her. He was satisfied that for the first time in his life, she didn't get to argue back. He knew that police would connect him to this crime, so he wrote a quick note that said, Approximately 5.15 a.m. Saturday, no need for her to suffer anymore at the hands of this horrible, murderous butcher. It was quick, sleep, the way I wanted it. Ed then ends up showing police where he buried the head of Cynthia Shaw in the backyard and then goes for a drive with police while showing them where he'd put the remains of his other victims and he gives them details on the murders. Ed is indicted on eight counts of first-degree murder on May 7, 1973. Because Ed confessed to all the crimes without a lawyer present, the public defender of Santa Cruz County, attorney Jim Jackson, really only had one option in defending Ed, the insanity defense. This isn't going to be easy, though, because Ed is intelligent and well-spoken, and it's very obvious in his confession that what he's done was planned. Even though Ed had once been diagnosed as psychotic, the records from the hospital claimed he was safe 
Obviously, that isn't true, but he wasn't cured, and then that laid Jackson's only hope for the conclusion of insanity. Twice while awaiting trial, Ed tries to slash his wrists and kill himself. On October 23, 1973, the trial starts, and in short order, three prosecution psychiatrists declare that Edmund Kemper is indeed sane. One psychiatrist, Dr. Joel Fort, had examined Ed's juvenile record thoroughly and interviewed Ed at length, once even using truth serum. Fort believed that Ed also dabbled in cannibalism and had likely eaten pieces of flesh from his victims. Despite this, Ford determines that Ed knew what he was doing, knew it was wrong, but craved the thrill of the kill and enjoyed the fame of being a mass murderer. That helped Dr. Fort come to the conclusion that Ed was sane. Fort goes on to say that Ed is not paranoid schizophrenic. Instead, Ed is obsessed with violence and sex, and he yearned for attention. As evidence of this, Ed tried to slash his wrist during trial with a ballpoint pen. Fort also believed wholeheartedly that if Ed were ever put back into society, he would definitely kill again. Throughout the trial, various witnesses, including Ed's sisters, tried to convince the jury that Edmund was insane. This obviously fails, though, because after just five hours of deliberation, the jury finds him guilty on all eight counts of first-degree murder. Ed is sent for a short time to Vacaville Medical Facility, but then he is promptly sent to the maximum security prison at Folsom to spend the rest of his life. Ed is still alive and at Folsom today. And to this day, Ed still likes to talk about his crimes. He's also done lengthy interviews with Robert Ressler of the FBI. In 1988, he and the killer clown John Wayne Gacy did a satellite broadcast where they talked about their crimes. As a prisoner, he is well-behaved, cooperates with authorities, and has read audiobooks for the visually impaired while behind bars. Seems nice. Despite this, Ed himself will admit that if he is let out, he will kill again. Good thing for all of us that Ed will never, ever see freedom. That should wrap up this episode. Hang tight for the final crumb. In the meantime, follow me on Instagram at Crime Biscuit or find me on Facebook at Crime Biscuit, a true crime podcast, or send me a Gmail at acrimebiscuit at gmail.com. Here's your final crumb. Don't hitchhike. It's like the beginning sequence of about a thousand horror movies. But if you think you have to, do not get into the car with a giant man, ever. Thanks for joining me. See you next time.